You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. You would turn your Bible to Genesis chapter 12. Thank you, Adam and Regen and choir, or not, musicians, for leading us this evening, and Emily and Andrew for leading us in, in worship. Um, we have so much talent here uh, at Lakeview that it astounds me, to be honest with you. And, and it's being stewarded for the kingdom of God. And um, it's been that way since Heather and I arrived here. 24 years ago. It's just hard to believe. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 12, and we're going to be looking at verses 10 to 20 tonight. Before we get into the text, let's pray. Father, thank you um, that we can behold you because we have been resourced greatly by our infinite God in the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Holy Spirit and through the Word of God. And Father, that's our desire tonight, is to behold you even more, to see even more clearly. Father, we pray that you would do that for us as this Word is preached, even as you have done so through song. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I was in college, you, you met our, my old uh, strength conditioning coach, Rich Wingo, you men did, at the Beast Feast last year. And uh, he actually acted sane that night uh, for, your, for your benefit. Uh, but there was an element of insanity with this man and, and his assistant, Rocky Colburn. Uh, they were uh, the strength and conditioning coaches. I'll be forever grateful for them. They didn't just impact me um, athletically. They impacted me spiritually. These were two godly men. But the things they asked us to do if I shared them with you, I would lose credibility with you because you wouldn't believe it. But one of those workouts that we would often have in the summer would be one o'clock in the afternoon and Tuscaloosa kind of sits in a, in a bowl and across the street from the, the, the course where we ran, the track where we ran, the practice field was the cheapest pizza in the country, Bama Beano's, you could buy a large pizza and a large Coke for 49 cents. <laughs> it was so cheap and you would smell it. And that cheap pizza cooking, and it's over 100 degrees out there, the humidity, your, your feet are so hot that you're having to hose down the bottom of your feet, I kid you not, off that turf. And one of the hard workouts that we would do would be a 16 110s with 30 seconds rest between them timed, and then 1655s, and then box jumps. But the one thing they didn't allow us to do, upon pain of injury if you did, was lean over at the waist. That's the natural thing to do when you are out of breath, is to lean over at the waist. They called it the loser's lean. If you were caught doing that, you had to run extra after the workout. So no one did it. But the reason they didn't want us to lean over at the waist between sprints 
was, first of all, you don't want the opponent to know that you're tired. You, don't, you want the opponent to think you're invulnerable, that this person cannot get tired. And so uh, what they wanted you to do instead between sprints was put your ha- hands over your, behind your head, which seems counterintuitive, counterproductive, but actually it's the best thing you could do because the second reason they didn't want you to do this loser's lean was because when you lean over the waist, you're cutting oxygen to your diaphragm. And so that's the natural thing, but it's the most costly thing. Uh, the most unnatural thing is to put your hands behind your back, but it's also the most productive thing. The losers lean. Well, tonight we're going to see in Genesis 12, verses 10 to 20, Abram's own version of the losers lean. When things got difficult, he did that which was natural, but was not the most fruitful and productive. Now, we saw last week his great response, his great faith response to God's call, which is meant to be a perpetual inspiration to us all, correct? As we see him persevere in faith, 2,000 years before Christ came on the scene, as Abram dwelt in the moon-worshiping city of Ur, he responded to the one and only and true God's call, Yahweh, and he trekked 800 miles to Canaan. As I said last week, it would be like traveling by foot to Cleveland, Ohio from Auburn, Alabama. Um, And there, Abram's trek of faith became uh, a tour of faith as he traveled uh, the length of the land. And what was he doing? He was building altars. And he was building altars to the Lord uh, as a way of worshiping him, but also as a way of, you know, staking a flag in the ground saying, this is Yahweh's territory. Yet as always, with the life of faith in a, a broken world, trials arise. Oftentimes they come after great victories. We see it even with Israel as they're redeemed out of Egypt. Remarkable Passover, remarkable redemption, but here they are in the wilderness and they're experiencing the trials of of lack of water and, and, and lack of bread and they begin to grumble and grumbling exposes their sin. We see it with David. David has been anointed king and David has these great victories where he's extending his kingdom, but then he has that trial where he is, his lust and his adulterous heart are exposed with, with Bathsheba. We see it with Jesus, who was baptized in the Jordan by John the Baptist, identifying with sinful man, and... God the Father pronounces this blessing on him. This is my my son in whom I'm well pleased. And then he goes through, he's led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil one-on-one. Unlike Israel and unlike David, though, this one obeyed uh, when all the others failed. Well, Abram is in that place now. Uh, He is about to find himself overcome by circumstances. And what we're going to see 
is that even though Abraham is the father of the one who would come, the hope of the world, he's not the one that we're to hope in. We see a faith lapse at the very beginning of this passage. Look with me in verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, and so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Now this is a simple statement, but, but it's filled with difficulty. Uh, this was the land of promise. Uh, this was the land flowing with milk and honey. And shouldn't he have expected that? I mean, based on the promises of God, shouldn't he have expected a land flowing with milk and honey? Instead, there's a famine in the land. Hardly had he pitched his tent when he found the land unable to support him and unable to support his family. Just as Sarai is barren, Canaan itself is barren. Now, in neither situation, Sarai's barrenness, the land's barrenness, uh, does God's promises seem to fit the appearance of the situation? Have you ever felt that way? God has made these remarkable promises, and the appearance of things do not seem to fit in with these, these promises. That's where Abram is Ironically, though, a man who had trusted, uh, as we saw last week, his entire future to God by leaving everything sacred uh, behind him in Ur is now overcome with fear because of a lack of food. And what this text is teaching us is, among other things, is that Abram has not yet learned to trust God for the daily details of life. He, he was prepared to trust God for the big picture. But the little details, when it came down to the daily issues, suddenly we see a flawed faith being exposed and in need of sanctifying. This was a test of perfection. It wasn't because of Abram's sin that this famine came on the land. But God is testing him. God is always testing his people. Keep in mind this principle. That which is not known about us can't be mourned over. That is our sin. And that which is not mourned over cannot be repented of. And so God is always exposing indwelling sin. He's always exposing our faith that is in need of sanctification. That's where Abram is here. Um, now, there are places in the Bible, not many, where God actually instructs his people to go to Egypt. We will see this later in Genesis when Jacob is instructed to go to Egypt. We also see it with Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus when they, they flee to Egypt. But for the most part, Egypt stands and represents a world that is in wrong alliance with God. Let me give you one example. Isaiah 31, verse 1. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. 
So right there, Isaiah is indicting those who trust in Egypt, human measures, human means, rather than entrusting the Lord. Um, but this isn't recorded to throw stones at, at Abram. <laughs> it's recorded so that we might look in the mirror. Um, so there will be times of testing. There will be times of, of temptation. And in those times, we will be tempted to trust in human measures rather than in the Lord. In fact, I would say those temptations are daily. In fact, there's already been so many tests for Abram at this point. Think about this. A barren wife, when God said it's going to be through their seed, uh, you have the hope of the world. Uh, an unknown destination. I'm going to go into the land I will show you. That's what he said to him up front. Um, leaving his family, his, his kindred, everything back in Ur. Um, Canaanites, we saw this last week, that there were Canaanites in the land. And now we see there is a, a famine. None of these up to this point were tests of correction. All right? They weren't due to Abram's sin. They were tests of perfection. You see the distinction? Keep in mind, this story is recorded for us, Romans 15, 4. This was written as an example to us. And as a result, we probably identify with Abram, don't we? I mean, we reason that obeying God is all right, but during times of trouble or stress or temptation, um, sometimes our piety goes out the window. Rather than entrusting in the Lord, we entrust in some kind of human measure or means. And in so doing, that storm of correct or perfection becomes a storm of correction. We add to the storm by responding wrongly to the test. Does that make sense? All of us will have storms of perfection. God is in the business of conforming us to Christ. God is in the business of strengthening our faith. But if we go to Egypt for help rather than the Lord, that storm of perfection gets intensified and we add complexities that become storms of correction. I believe that's one of the reasons this text is here. The, uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse uh, says, and by the way, Donald Gray Barnhouse was a, a faithful pastor, early mid 20th century in Philadelphia. Uh, he he was uh, he had such significance. He was he had a radio show, a CBS radio show, and so people would hear him preach. He was very faithful. Uh, D. James Kennedy was influenced by him. I think he may have been led to Christ by Barnhouse. Um, but Barnhouse was the one that influenced D. James Kennedy when he created evangelism explosion. Barnhouse had preached a sermon, and those points becomes the, the points of evangelism explosion. I learned that from uh, Dr. Moeller recently on one of his podcasts. I had not heard that. But Barnhouse says that like a coin, a coin, a coin that has a head and a tail, every event in life can either draw us to God or draw us away. Every event, 
every circumstance, every test, every temptation. And so if Abram had stayed in Canaan with the famine, his faith would have grown because he would have seen God move in ways beyond his imagination. He would have done that. How do we know that? The promise. God had made a promise to him. He would have seen the Lord provide. Since he didn't, that same famine um, actually ended up pushing him further away from the Lord. So going to Egypt, that's the natural choice. It really is. Why not go to a place where there is, is uh, food and sustenance? But God had told him to go to Canaan. But it was not a wise one for him. It was the loser's lean, so to speak. It's the natural thing to do, but it's the counterproductive, counterfruitful thing to do. He should have realized that God's promises for him and God's purposes for him could not be thwarted by a mere famine. God's bigger than that. He should have believed that. But his logic was natural. Just like the loser's lean is natural, but it was fatally sinful. Beyond anything that we can see straightforwardly from this text, I'm going to try to bring it out in a moment. But you know his problem because you've done this yourself. You have been guilty of this yourself. He, be- he failed to believe that God was bigger than the problem. God was more faithful to his promises than the problem. And this is going to become a common pattern in Abram's life. Going to Egypt was natural, but not godly. And I think we're like him. Trials come, and we get into survivor mode. One of the evidences of it is we become prayerless. We, we become prayerless. We, we don't go to our face. We get in survivor mode, and we become, get this, even for Christians, functional atheist. I'm not saying you're a real atheist, but we become functional atheist. And one of the evidences of this is prayerlessness. Another evidence of this is anxiety. Anxiety. It is a symptom of believing that God's not going to get it right, that God is not going to come through. Anxiety is believing that me and my problems are just going one-on-one with each other. And they're not going one-on-one with each other because the Lord is our salvation, as we sang tonight. The Lord is present with us. He failed to believe that God was bigger than the famine. And so um, we're looking to Egypt when we worry by saying God doesn't really care We don't say that, but we think it, and God does care. We say God can't provide. We may not say that, but we think it, and God does provide. Um, God has pledged himself as shepherd. We saw that this morning, didn't we? He has pledged himself as shepherd to provide for his sheep, to protect his sheep, to guide his sheep, to feed, to nourish his sheep. The Lord is present And when I worry, I'm saying my problems are bigger than that, and they're not. So struggles come in marriage, and what does 
a person do? He may, he may run to pornography. He may run to an illicit affair. Um, problems come financially. And then this person becomes enslaved to Mr. MasterCard. There's various ways we do that. Um, perhaps we're single, and, and so instead of trusting the Lord, we, we, we think God needs our help, and so we settle for someone who may not be a Christian, but I can help this person become a Christian. All of these are examples of going to Egypt when there's famine. Well, notice in verse 11, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a beautiful, a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. And then they will kill me. See how life gets complicated when you disobey God? Sin complicates things, always. That truth bats a thousand. They will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. And so it appears, and we're seeing it here, when tested, and by the way, the tests reveal who we really are. Abram is by nature... And by pattern of life, a cunning man. He wasn't knowingly risking Sarai's life. I don't think he's doing that. But by posing as brother and sister, he, he was hopefully buying time. Besides, it was a half-truth. Sarah was his half-sister. The problem is this was not done in faith, and anything not done in faith is a sin, and sin, hear me out, always complicates things. All you have to do is counsel somebody. Counsel a couple. Sin always complicates things. Abram, if we were to boil it down to the core issue, was living with promise amnesia. God had made these promises, and Abram had promise amnesia, faith lapse. Now, verses 14 to 16, we see the faith lapse consequences, and there's always consequences. Verse 14, when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, now, this is the first time right there that Pharaoh is mentioned in the Bible. Right there in chapter 12, verse 15. When the princes, and they're never named, by the way. So don't try to figure out uh, if the Pharaoh and the, the Egyptian story is Ramses. We don't know who it is. All right? So it doesn't matter. If it mattered, we'd know his name. When the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. This is on Abram right here. Um, Abram had not realized one thing in this cunning half lie, half truth. And that one thing was the most powerful man on the world, in the world, Pharaoh. 
the average Egyptian uh, would have negotiated for his sister. Not his real sister, but his half-sister, but not Pharaoh. There was no negotiations with the Pharaoh. He didn't have to negotiate. Um, There was uh, an Egyptian tale at the time called the two brothers. And, and and, and And it gives us some insight into Pharaoh. It wasn't a true story, but it was a it was a, a kind of like a a story that describes the kind of power the pharaohs had of the day. And so in this tale, the two brothers, this pharaoh falls in love with a woman who is married, okay? And he takes her into his house and he bestows on her the title Great Lady. And then he has the great lady's husband killed. And here's the point. The Pharaoh could get anything he wanted. He could have anyone he wanted. And so the danger is real. Abram is very aware of the danger. And then there's this moral twist. Pharaoh was so pleased with obtaining Sarai that he made Abram a rich man. Look at me in verse 16. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. So not only did he stay alive, By his lie, he is enriched by it. Things seem to be going well for Abram. Man, uh, God's not so angry after all at my compromise. But I want you to note something if you have a keen eye. And what I want you to see in verse 16 is female servants. He was given female servants. And why is that a big deal? Well, if you flip over to chapter 16, verse 1, and the reader of Genesis would be aware of this, what does that tell us? Sarah had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. It looks like he's been enriched through compromise, but all he's done It's complicated his life more and more and more because he did not trust in the Lord. Female donkeys and camels, uh, that speaks to how wealthy he now was. Um, Donkeys were more controllable and dependable for riding. Therefore, it was the the ride of the rich, you know, to have uh, these donkeys. And then camels had just, historians tell us, had just been domesticated, and they were a rarity at this point. We think about Egypt today, we think about camels, but they had just been domesticated at this point. So it was seen as a status symbol. So not only was he enriched, he was given status symbols, all because he told this white lie. God isn't that holy after all, maybe he was thinking. So deceitful was Abram 
that he enjoyed these luxurious things all while his wife was potentially being compromised, while she, she spent, must have spent sleepless nights in Pharaoh's harem. Horrible. Now, can you imagine every time he saw a camel or heard the braying of a donkey, it probably would have been a reminder to him that Sarai was no longer in his house. He couldn't enjoy the riches. He couldn't enjoy the plunder of his compromise. That is the consequences of the faith lapse. But that's not the end of the story. The end of the story we see, and this doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem right when it happens to others, but we love it when it happens to us. His faith lapse is covered by mercy. Praise God for that. Because he doesn't deserve it, and you know he doesn't deserve it, but we don't deserve it either. Verse 17, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? We don't know exactly uh, how he learned that. Um, perhaps Sarai told her, told the Pharaoh. We don't know. Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. I find in this last part of this chapter both a warning and an encouragement. Uh, as for the warning, Abram's sin has led to great loss, as it always does. That's why Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord, by the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil. It has led to great loss. But we also can be encouraged here. F.B. Meyer says this about this passage, the world may entreat us well, but that will be a poor compensation for our losses. There is no altar in Egypt, no fellowship with God, no new promises. It's like God is silent. But a desolated home and a wretched sense of wrong. When the prodigal leaves his father's house, though he may win a brief spell of forbidden pleasure, Yet he loses all that makes life worth living. I wish every college student could tattoo that on their brains and brings himself down to the level of swine. That's the warning. But there's also a great encouragement at the end of this chapter. God's purposes, his covenantal uh, purposes are not thwarted by our blunderings, by our incompetence, by our compromise, by our tendency towards the loser's lean. And I'm grateful for that. Individually, we sin. 
We make unwise choices as individuals, as parents, as husbands, as wives, as churchmen, as neighbors. We make unwise choices that may pay for a moment, just like uh, someone who gets a new credit card and they go out and they just go on a spending spree. And it appears that this, this credit card really does lead to true freedom until the balloon payment comes due right? And that's what's happened with Abram. But God's purposes cannot be thwarted. And that's freedom for me as a Christian. It's freedom for me as a husband and as a father, because I don't husband perfectly. I don't father perfectly. I don't pastor perfectly. Sometimes it's unwitting, but I engage in the loser's lean way too often as a man of God. Now, this does not relieve me of responsibility that God's mercy covers. God forbid we have that mentality. Paul addressed that in Romans chapter 6. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him in baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we may too walk in newness of life. He says that right after saying, while sin abounds, grace much more abounds. So it does not relieve me of my responsibility, but it does strengthen my faith. It nurtures my love for this merciful God. It does. Abram's hope and our hope is not rooted in our performance because you're going to engage this week, perhaps, in the loser lean in some form or fashion. You may not even be aware that you're doing it because it's so normal part of your life, okay? Our hope is not bound up in our performance, but in Abram's offspring. Abram's seed, the one who would come. That's one of the purposes of this narrative is, yes, it's an example to us, but it also reminds us Abram is not the hope. The hope is still to come. And the one who would come left the father's side in heaven to come to earth to an insignificant town, but unlike Abram, he did so fully and perfectly in the strength and in the promises of God. Not one time did Jesus engage in the loser's lean. Not one time did he go to Egypt because of a famine. He entrusted himself to the one who resourced him. And unlike Abram, who, who deceived in order to save his own life, Jesus was the very truth of God incarnate and lost his life because of that truth, knowing it would cost him his life. But did that promise falter at the cross? The promise of God. It looked like it did for three days. But God's promises emerged victorious over something much more sinister than famine. It emerged victorious over sin and death and the devil. 
And that's why we find our yes and amen in Jesus Christ himself. So during the reality gap, and there's a reality gap in the sense that God has given these promises and the appearance of things do not seem to match the promises, just like Abram with his famine. During the reality gap, we cling to the promises and we, the promises of God, and we cling to the God of the promises and we look to the risen Christ who guarantees the fulfillment of these promises. I want you to think about this before we close. This is preparing us for uh, an exodus that's going to be the precursor to Jesus' work. Think about this. Um, the parallels. There was a severe famine. All right? So Jacob goes into Egypt, just as Abram goes into Egypt. Um, so he soldiers in, sojourns in Egypt. And then uh, you have the killing uh, of the males, bondage, wealth, plagues that fall, and then the final call, take and go, take and go. It's what Pharaoh said to Abram, and it's what Pharaoh said to the Israelites, take and go. But all of that was preparing us for the one who would bring about the utter and final exodus from the bondage, not of Egypt, the bondage of ourselves, of our sin and the evil one. The point is God protects his people in every age in spite of them. His strategy supersedes human failures. And, and this is a passage that can only be applied to believers. This is, this is those of us who struggle we really do. We struggle with the promises because we, what we see and what we have heard from God's word sometimes seem to be in conflict. And the test reveals what you're believing. If you go to Egypt, you're saying God can't resource this. God can't fix this. God can't provide. He needs my help. Abram's going to do that again. When Sarah fails to get pregnant, he's going to go to Egypt. He's going to go to an Egyptian woman, a slave woman, and because he believes God needs his help. All the conflict you see today is a result of that compromise. This is a word to us, but the greater word is that God's mercy triumphs over our loser's lane. And that should incite in all of us a greater love for our God. It's also uh, a call to those of you that perhaps live in Egypt. That's where you are. That's, that's, that's your home address because you've never trusted in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So as Adam and the musicians come forward, we're going to give you an opportunity to respond. Again, nobody stays the same when the word has been preached. Even if it's an average preaching, average sermon, an average preacher no one stays the same when the word has been preached. Your, your faith has actually been strengthened tonight or in some mysterious way you have been drawn away more from the Lord because you don't respond in faith. Some of you have not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe that in a, in a crowd this large. We want to give you an opportunity to do that tonight. What does it mean to trust in him? It's to recognize you're a sinner and that God righteously and justly judges all sin. 
all sin will be judged, and it will be an eternal judgment. It will be an eternal hell for those who are under this judgment, and that is our natural condition. And yet God, in this mercy that we've seen in our text, has provided a way to judge your sin through the greater Abram, the seed of Abram, the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you will trust in Jesus and what he's done for you at the cross, the Bible says your sins will be forgiven. Won't you come tonight? Respond to that message. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.